recently read a story in a fantastic book called Holy Envy by the incomparable Barbara Brown Taylor. Now, Barbara Brown Taylor used to be an Episcopalian priest until she decided she wanted to go to the classroom, and she went to a small Christian college called Piedmont College in Georgia, and she taught a world religions class. In one semester, she was tasked with teaching freshmen and sophomores in college about all of the world's religions as fast as she possibly could. Now, she also battled an expectation that Christian students brought to this classroom. You see, these Christian students assumed that when they enrolled in her class, that she would teach them why all the other religions were wrong and Christianity was the right religion. But that's not how Dr. Taylor worked. See, Dr. Taylor wanted them to grow in their appreciation for all of the world's religions, particularly those that were not their own. So she would take them to several different experiences in several different religions so they could experience firsthand what it was like to participate in those religious communities. There is one story that really stood out to me in particular, and it takes place at a Buddhist monastery near Atlanta, Georgia. She took her class there, and they sat down in this room that was filled with books, and they sat and waited for a monk to walk into the room. Eventually, a monk walked to the front of the room in orange robes and began to teach. His teaching went something like this. He said, I want to teach to you today about how to cultivate happiness. How many of you have felt unhappy that you are not in a relationship? And then you get into a relationship and you find that you are unhappy then. How many of you have told yourself, I'm unhappy because I don't have a job? And then you get a job, and you find that you are still unhappy. The monk continued and said, we have this idea that our happiness is contingent on the circumstances around us. Why? Circumstances do not make you happy. Circumstances change all the time, and it's very rare that you can control them yourself. So what we need to do is change the way we think about happiness. Rather than try to find happiness out there among the circumstances, why don't we try to find happiness in here? And think about the one thing we can change and the one thing we can control, which is the way that we think about happiness. At this point, one of the Christian students turned to Dr. Taylor and the way that she describes it, she said that his eyes were wide as saucers and he was looking at shock and his mouth was down and he looked at her and he whispered to his teacher, this teaching is just about life. Now, what does that say about what Brian is used to hearing? What we can deduce from this is that Brian is used to hearing religious teachings about belief. But if you go to a Buddhist monastery, you're not going to hear much about belief, Right? Instead, they're going to teach you about life. And there is this expectation that people bring when they come to church that when you come to church, you're going to learn how to believe in God, right? You're going to learn how to believe in the resurrection. You're going to learn how to believe that Jesus died for your sins. And we have this different expectation that when Buddhists sit around a monk's feet and learn about life, we say, oh, that's very different than what Christianity is all about, right? And when we look at this expectation that her student Brian brought to this teaching, 
There is this idea that Christianity's teaching should be all about belief. And if that's true, then we should be able to go all the way back to the beginning of Christian thought and realize that they started teaching about belief from the very beginning. So let's go back to the very beginning of Christianity, back to the Sermon on the Mount, which took place on a hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee, a hillside just like this. Now, Jesus has just come out of the wilderness in Matthew's gospel. He has not done much. He has just lived as a poor and oppressed Jew among other poor and oppressed Jews. And in this sermon, he is speaking to people who are in the same circumstance as him. He's not a rich person speaking to poor people. He's not a super religious person talking to not so religious people. He's talking to brothers and sisters and people who are in the same class as him, who have had the same struggles as him, right? And in this sermon, he tells the people that are listening to him on this hillside, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. To which I imagine them thinking, me? Us? We're forgotten by the Roman Empire. I don't think you're speaking to the right people. Now, I have heard this passage taught on several times in my life. I grew up in church school, went to church. I heard all about this, and I was often told that you become the salt of the earth and you become the light of the world by what you believe. If you're willing to go out and tell the world that Jesus died and rose again, well then, wouldn't you know it, you become the salt of the earth. You become the light of the world. And so Jesus says these words to these unsuspecting people, and they're like, really, us? And it's preceded by a few instructions from Jesus. And we would assume that we would find a bunch of instructions about how these people are to believe. So let's go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and see what Jesus tells his people, tells these people on a hillside, they need to do in order to become salt of the earth and light of the world. The beginning of the Sermon on the Mount goes like this. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Amen. I had no idea what poor in spirit looks, was before this week. I had to look it up. <laughs> and the best way I could understand it was spiritual poverty. Now, I came across a story recently that was so well written that I thought I'd read it to you this morning. And it's a story written by Langston Hughes, one of America's greatest poets. And I was going to tell you this story, but then I realized he writes the story way better than I could tell it. So I'm just going to read it to you. And it's a story about being poor in spirit. He begins by saying, I was saved from sin when I was going on 13, but not really saved. It happened like this. There was a big revival at my Auntie Reed's church. Every night for weeks, there had been much preaching, singing, and praying, and shouting, and some very hardened sinners had been brought to Christ, and the membership of the church had grown by leaps and bounds. Then, just before the revival ended, they held a special meeting for the children to bring the young lambs to the fold, they said. My aunt spoke of it for days ahead. That night, I was escorted to the front row and placed on the mourner's bench with all the other young sinners who had not yet been brought to Jesus. My aunt told me that when you were saved, you saw a light and something happened to you inside. And Jesus came into your life and God was with you from then on. She said you could see and hear and feel Jesus in your soul. And I believed her. I had heard a great many old people say the same thing, and it seemed to me they ought to know. So I sat there calmly in the hot, crowded church, waiting for Jesus to come to me. 
The preacher preached a wonderful, rhythmical sermon, all moans and shouts and lonely cries and dire pictures of hell. And then he sang a song about the 99 safe in the fold, but one little lamb was left in the cold. Then the preacher said, won't you come to Jesus? Won't you come to Jesus, young lambs? Won't you come? And he held out his arms to all of us young sinners there on the mourner's bench. And the little girls cried. And some of them jumped up and went to Jesus right away. But most of us just sat there. A great many old people came and knelt around us and prayed, old women with jet black faces and braided hair, old men with work gnarled hands, and the church sang a song about the lower lights are burning, some poor sinners to be saved, and the whole building rocked with prayer and song. But still, I kept waiting to see Jesus. Finally, all the young people had gone to the altar and were saved, but one boy and me, he was a rounder's son named Wesley, Wesley and I were surrounded by sisters and deacons praying. It was very hot in the church and getting late now. Finally, Wesley said to me in a whisper, God damn, I'm tired of sitting here. Let's get up and be saved. <laughs> so Wesley got up and he was saved. Then I was left all alone on the mourner's bench. My aunt came and knelt at my knees and cried while prayers and songs swirled all around me in the little church. The whole congregation prayed for me alone in a mighty wail of moans and voices, and I kept waiting serenely for Jesus, waiting, waiting, but he did not come to me that evening. I wanted to see him, but nothing happened to me. Nothing. I wanted something to happen to me, but nothing happened. I heard the songs and the minister saying, why don't you come to Jesus? My dear child, why don't you come to Jesus? Jesus is waiting for you. He wants you. Why don't you come? Sister Reed, what is this child's name? Langston, my aunt sobbed. Langston, why don't you come to Jesus? Why don't you come and be saved? Oh, Lamb of God, why don't you come to be saved right now? Now, it was getting really late, and I began to be ashamed of myself. Holding everything up so long, I began to wonder what God thought about Wesley who certainly hadn't, been, hadn't seen Jesus either, but who was now sitting proudly on the platform, swinging his knickerbocker legs, and grinning down at me, surrounded by deacons and old women on their knees praying. God had not struck Wesley dead for taking his name in vain or for lying in the temple. So I decided that maybe, maybe to save further trouble, I'd better lie too and say that Jesus had come and get up and be saved. So I got up. Suddenly, the whole room broke into a sea of shouting, and as they saw me rise, waves of rejoicing swept the place. Women leapt in the air. My aunt threw her arms around me. The minister took me by the hand and led me to the platform. And when things quieted down in a hushed silence, punctuated by a few ecstatic amens, all the new young lambs were blessed in the name of God. Then joyous singing filled the room. That night, for the first time in my life, but one for I was a big boy, 12 years old, I cried. I cried in bed alone, and I could not stop. I buried my head under the quilts, but my aunt heard me. She woke up and told my uncle I was crying because the Holy Ghost had come into my life and because I had seen Jesus. But I was really crying because I couldn't bear to tell her that I had lied, that I had deceived everybody in the church, that I had not seen Jesus, and that now... I didn't believe there was a Jesus anymore since he didn't come to help me. If you've ever longed for God to help you in a moment and felt abandoned by God, my friends, you are poor in spirit. 
And along comes Jesus in his opening line. He says, blessed are those who have been abandoned by God, who have been honest about it, and who tell us that God hasn't solved all their problems. They're the ones who are blessed, and that's the road to the kingdom of heaven, not the way where you say, hey, I see Jesus all the time, and all the time God is good. This is the way to Jesus. And immediately the people hearing this would have thought, this sermon is upside down. From the opening line, this sermon is upside down. Jesus goes on to say, blessed are those who are mourning. Remember, if you're grieving, people typically think God is angry with you. But Jesus says, no, blessed are you if you're crying, because if you are, you will one day be comforted. Blessed are those who are gentle, for they will inherit the land. In Jesus' day and age, if you wanted more land, you bought bigger guns, right? Maybe that's our day and age. I get them confused all the time, right? But Jesus says, do you want the land? Don't be violent. Be gentle. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. They will have their fill. Blessed are those who show mercy to others, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are those whose hearts are clean, for they will find and they will see God. What this means is that you have good intentions. And even if you make mistakes, if you are trying to do your best, then you have a heart that is clean. Blessed are those who work for peace. They will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of their struggle for justice. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. And right after that, Jesus says, my friends, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You doubters, you grievers, you people who say, no, I'm not going to do violence today. All of you are the ones who are blessing the world and giving it its flavor and its light and its direction. Quick recap. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. What is he asking people to do? Doubt. Grieve. Be gentle, do justice, love mercy, have good intentions, make peace, and persevere. Now, something tells me that if Brian was hearing this sermon, he would lean to his teacher and say, this sermon is just about life. Where's the belief? Does this guy know what Christianity is? But this sermon doesn't end there. That's only the first part of the first chapter. Jesus is just getting warmed up. The second part of that first chapter, chapter 5, Jesus goes on to give them more instructions. He says, honor your tradition. Live with less anger. Make amends. Don't objectify women. Don't give up on your spouse. Keep your word. And don't respond to violence with violence. And love your enemy. I wish he would have left that last part out, right? Man, that would make it so much easier. But you look at all of these things that Jesus is asking the people on the side of a hill over the Sea of Galilee to do, and you say to yourself, where's the belief? Brian would say to us, this is just about life. But Jesus still has two more chapters to go in this sermon. He keeps going when you wish he would stop. You know how that goes? You might be feeling it right now. We won't talk about it. He says, give to the poor, participate in rituals with humility. Don't make a show of the things that matter to you. Do not put your value in material wealth. God is more important than money and live with less anxiety. Now, I would accept an argument if somebody said God is more important than money is a belief. That's fine. That's one thing so far. And Brian would say, okay, this is mostly about life. And in the last chapter, Jesus tells people to be less judgmental. Do not profane what is holy. Pray in good faith. The golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And search to find a life worth living and become self-aware. 
Two of these things you can argue are about belief, do not profane what is holy and pray in good faith, but I still believe that Brian would say this is mostly about life. Jesus makes 29 points. Three of them are about beliefs. So when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, is he talking about belief? Kind of. This is much more about how you live in a world that has oppressed, forsaken, and left you for dead. How do you move and live and breathe? The Sermon on the Mount is a sermon about how to live, not how to believe. And this is the start. This is the first sermon in Christian history, right? So you may be hearing all of this and thinking to yourself, well, what on earth happened between 30 CE and 2023 CE? Because if this was the original, why is it that we come to church with this expectation that we're going to hear about how we should believe correctly? And while I don't have a direct answer, my best educated guess is about 1,500 years after this, there was a guy named the Pope who really wanted to build the most opulent, eccentric cathedral you could possibly imagine. He was going to call it St. Peter's Basilica, and this thing was going to blow people out of the water, right? Like this was going to be the temple to end all temples. Now, of course, to build opulent temples, you need a God-forsaken amount of money, right? And well, the way they did that was they made people feel really guilty for their sins. They said, do you want to be forgiven by God for your sins? And the people said yes, and they said, well, you can buy your forgiveness. And while it may be easy for us to say today, wow, people fell for that, I would encourage you to exercise a little bit of empathy <laughs> toward people who were living in a very different era than you or I live in today. Because when you hear this church, the one church telling you, hey, God hasn't forgiven you for your sins, you kind of believe it, right? And they believed wholeheartedly that they were not being forgiven for their sins. So they bought these indulgences over and over again, and they started building St. Peter's Basilica in this early 16th century. Now, this was happening in what would eventually become the Vatican, but uh, this caught the attention of a random monk in a random city in Germany named Martin Luther. And Martin Luther saw all these sales of indulgences that were going to fund this opulent temple. And he got so mad that he made a list. And this list was 95 points long. And if you've never read it, it's totally worth reading because it's way more sarcastic and angry than you would expect it to be. It was the first form of Twitter back then, right? <laughs> this was a thread, if you get what I'm saying. To give you an idea, number 86, I love this one. Um, before we start, though, there's a family called the Crassus family. They were like the Gates family of their day, really rich family. So that's what he assumes you know. Number 86, why does not the Pope, whose wealth is today greater than the wealth of the richest Crassus, build this one basilica of St. Peter with his own money rather than with the money of the poor believers? That's number 86. There's 94 other ones of these, right? <laughs> And he said, shouldn't, shouldn't the rich guy pay for this? Why is it that he's asking the poor to pay for this? And while he doesn't explicitly state this doctrine in this thesis statement or in this thesis list, Martin Luther would eventually sharpen and start using words that described where salvation came from. He used this phrase that was salvation by grace alone. And salvation by grace alone is a really radical humanitarian concept because it was going to the masses, going to the people and saying like, hey, you've heard that you have to buy your forgiveness for God. Your forgiveness from God is a gift. 
You don't have to pay anything for it. So this idea restored salvation to the masses. It circumvented the institutional nature of church and said, hey, you guys, you've heard that salvation is really hard to achieve. No, no, no. It's a gift freely given by God. Salvation by grace alone. You can't do anything to earn it. Well, this started the Protestant movement. This was the official start of the Reformation. It started the Protestant movement. And as you can imagine, things change and warp over time, specifically about 500 years, where all these Protestant Christians now living in America, which Martin Luther had no idea existed at the time, started listening to Martin Luther and they said, oh yeah, salvation by grace alone. I think it's better if we call it salvation by faith alone. And salvation by faith is something I've heard frequently, but it's not really what Martin Luther talked about. And switching that word from grace to faith is a big difference. Because all of a sudden, rather than saying, hey, salvation is given as a gift of grace by God to you, Christians now believe that their salvation occurs when they think correctly about God. And when we talk about salvation by faith, it's like, do you have the right beliefs? Because if you don't, then God will recognize that you have fallen to the wrong beliefs. You have not recognized the true authority of Scripture. And we're not sure God can save that. It's not a gift. It's something you earn by your intellect and thought all of a sudden. So I have a sense that this Reformation, Martin Luther's teaching, all led to preachers starting to say, you know what? You guys have to believe correctly. Make sure you've got your right ducks in a row when it comes to issues like the resurrection, Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross, when it comes to what it means to believe in a trinity. You have to adhere to all those things. And if you check enough theological boxes, then maybe God will find it in God's heart to save you. That's not a message of salvation by grace alone. It's salvation by faith alone. And it is why so many Christian preachers today when you walk through our doors, we'll preach to you about how to believe correctly. And this is why it is so stunning when Brian walks in with a class to a Buddhist monastery and the monk starts teaching about life and he says, you can just talk about life in religious teachings? You just talk about what it means to be human? How is this possible? How do they function? Where were their creeds? Did they have a council about this? And it seems really foreign until the moment you start to say, wait a second, wait a second, is it foreign or is it actually calling us back to what was before? Because Jesus, when he preaches his first sermon, it's not, let me tell you what you need to believe to get in heaven. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let me tell you what you need to live a life of love. Let me tell you what you need to live a life that's worth living. Let me tell you what you need to encounter suffering and know how to respond. And I would say that the big thesis of this Sermon on the Mount in regards to all that has come afterwards and how much Christians emphasize correct belief is I would say that Jesus is trying to tell us today that life is greater than belief. Belief's good. Belief's good. Don't get me wrong. I, I believe things personally, and whenever somebody shares their beliefs with me, I, I really respect it because they're sharing what's valuable. But who cares what you believe if you're a terrible person, Right? Who cares what you believe if you're judgmental and harsh? I don't care how much you tell me about the resurrection. If you hate specific groups of people, 
I'm not sure we're talking about the same Jesus anymore. And I think that this sermon serves as a reminder to call us back that beliefs are good in their proper place, but they are always subservient to how we live. And we are called to live to be people who make amends, people who stand up for justice, people who are honest about the doubt we have. People who go to funerals and weep, they don't say, oh, I have so much faith, I'm going to see them again. They say, isn't it tragic we lost this person that we loved? Just recently, I had the honor and privilege of speaking to somebody about what it was that they believed. And they told me that they had grown up in the church and they believed it and they believed all about God, heaven, hell, everything. But it just didn't make sense when they started having friends who were outside the church. This person then turned to me and said, why are you still part of Christianity besides your paycheck that you get? I said, hey, that's not fair. <laughs> and I said, I'm still part of it because I think it helps me to become a more loving person. Now, this person I was speaking to heard this, and she thought about it for a moment, and she said, maybe I would be part of a church if the Christians I knew were exceptionally loving people. Maybe if I saw them constantly placing life of love at the top of what it meant to be Christian or a cause for justice, maybe, maybe that would make me want to go to church. Now, what's interesting about this is that Christians often think that if they believe the right things, they'll be so magnetic that the masses will stream in. I would disagree. If you want to talk about growing the church or bringing more people to church, the best way to do it is to live a life in a way that is more loving, is willing to admit when it's wrong, is willing to stand up for what's right, and step forward with grace and kindness to oneself. Not only that, but we have this idea that once you become a Christian, you're automatically a super loving person. No, you're not. It takes time. It takes patience. And it also takes humility to recognize that there are some people outside of Christianity that are more loving than any Christian you'll ever meet. And you welcome them as your teacher. My friends, this sermon calls us back to the fact that life is greater than belief. I think about the church, and one of the worst things that's happened in my lifetime that the church has done, and that has been the church's strict condemnation of queer folks. It has been tragic to watch at how much they have been called abominations and horrible things all in the name of saying, like, well, I believe in the word of God. And it's like, but you're hating, right? And 1 John talks about anytime you love someone, you are living in the presence of God. And I think that all of this condemnation is rooted in homophobia, but it's masked under the guise of this idea that correct belief is the most important thing. It's, it's rooted in this idea that, like, well, I can say all these things because I'm all about correct belief. No, we got to stop and say, remember the Sermon on the Mount. Life is greater than belief, always. And so we need to be kinder. We need to be more accepting. We need to understand that life is going to be broader than what we understood growing up. And that's okay because life is always going to be in the driver's seat. And belief will always be in the backseat. I think about the music we sing. And I think about how we often sing here every week together. And I think about what a privilege it is to sing together. And I've been in a lot of church in my life. And I've sung so many songs. And these songs are often singing about what we believe. 
They will often sing songs about our stasis before God or who we are and how we're going to change what we believe to become better people. And that's good and there's room for that. But I have been drawn more and more and more to songs that speak about how we're going to live. And songs that when I sing them out loud, it puts me in a posture to be a person that is described in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I recently heard a song by one of my favorite bands called Gunger, and the chorus is so simple. The chorus is, I forgive you, please forgive me too. Well, why aren't we singing this song together as a community? Why aren't we singing our songs that remind us, hey, is there a way to forgive the people that I'm having a hard time forgiving? Is there a way to ask for forgiveness when my ego does not want me to? And so we need to sing more songs that speak less about belief and much more about how we live. And the reason for this is the Sermon on the Mount, because life is greater than belief. And this is captured in an excellent poem, one of the greatest poems I've ever come across by Langston Hughes. Remember him, the poor in spirit guy? The one who Christians often write off and say like, oh, he's a heretic, he's a danger to the faith. And Jesus says, no, actually, he's blessed. You should listen to him. He writes a poem called God, and it goes like this. I am God without one friend, alone in my purity, world without end. Down below, young lovers tread the sweet ground, but I am God, and I cannot come down. Spring, love is life, and life is love only. Better to be human than God and lonely. And the way that I hear that poem is that he's saying, like, you can think that you have the thoughts of God with your belief, but it will only lead to isolation because you'll be so judgmental of everyone else. Why not just be human and embrace the people and the beauty around you. Life is more important than belief. My friends, may your beliefs lead you to be a more honest, a more beautiful, and a more loving person who lives a more loving life. May you live a life that is a blessing to others and a blessing to you. And may you live in a way that you are salt and light to every person that you meet, no matter what it is that you believe. Amen.